Let's do Mark. Uh, and the handouts are coming. You'll be okay. You can catch up on blanks or whatever. But we're going to go fast through Mark um, because, and I wish I wish we could do Mark like full justice. It deserves all that. You've had the other Gospels, so I think the content makes sense. So I just want to talk about Mark distinctives instead of like getting devotionally into passages, which would be fun to do. Let's just talk about Mark distinctives kind of quickly um, so you can make sure we have that. Um, so when Jonathan comes back, you'll have your notes if you don't have them yet. Okay? But you'll be okay. Um, so let's talk about Mark. Do you, some of you have your notes? Yes? Some do? Okay. So um, for the intro, um, here's your first blank. The church historian Papias. <laughs> you think about it. You could do it. Papias. Just give it a shot. How do you think it's spelled? That's my guess. P-A-P-I-A-U-S? P-A-P-I-A-S. Oh, what? <laughs> Did you? Interesting. Papias. The church historian Papias says that Mark recorded the sermons of Peter to produce this gospel. Um, so this is written by a guy named Mark, but um, the, the kind of tradition or origin traces to the apostle Peter. So Matthew was one of the disciples. Uh, Mark writes down the sermons, the sayings, the teachings of one of the apostles. Luke interviewed probably some of the apostles, right? You talked about that a couple of weeks ago. John was one of the apostles, so all of them tied directly to like people who were there, right there at the same time with Jesus. So um, the church historian Papias says that Mark recorded the sermons of Peter to produce this gospel, which is interesting to think about as you read it, because the uh, thing we're going to talk about about it later, just the way it flows, the way it's structured, it feels a little bit like here's a topic, like let's teach through that. Here's another one, it kind of moves through in chunks like that. So if you read it um, like it's somebody preaching, somebody teaching, then, um, thank you, uh, then I think it helps, it helps it make some sense. Those are coming around. Uh, so Mark, here's your, your next blanks on that. Mark is most likely John Mark. So the name Mark that the gospel comes from is most likely referred to elsewhere in scripture as John Mark. So we read about him in Acts, you read about him in Colossians, in First Peter, um, that Paul interacts with him, he travels with Paul, that's the John Mark we're talking about, who knew Peter and wrote down his sermons, and that's our gospel. Does that make sense, that flow of, of information? Okay. Uh, Mark was probably written first, I think we've talked about that a little bit when we talked about Matthew and the synoptics and Q and all that, you guys remember that, the Q conversation? fascinating stuff, right, that I'm sure you loved and will never forget. Mark was probably written first sometime in the 60s, um, probably. Um, some people may think a little earlier than that, like in the 50s, some a little later, but I think probably in the 60s is, is a good bet. Um, so here's some reasons why people think Mark was written first. This, this, you don't have to like have these memorized, but I think it's interesting, and I think it may be helpful for you just to think about the nature of how this stuff's put together. So for one, in stories common between Mark and Matthew, so stories that both of them tell. Mark usually has the longer version. I don't remember if we've talked about that uh, before when we talked about Matthew. So usually when they have the same story, um, it's really, really, really similar, but Mark's is a little bit longer. So people will say, that makes sense that that was first then, because if Matthew records the same story, he's probably going to be a little more concise, because he knows it's already written. You've got the details. Let me just shrink it up a little bit and give you what you need. Like what I'm doing right now. I'm giving you Mark shorter because you've already had Matthew, right? Uh, secondly, comparing Matthew 24 and Mark 13. I know we've talked about this before. Matthew uses that Greek word parousia. P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A. 
um, but Mark doesn't. Um, Luke also doesn't, which makes me think Luke is probably before 70 AD as well. Do you remember why that's significant when we talked about Matthew? Why does this matter? Yeah, because the yeah, in what year? 70. 70 AD. So if Matthew is written after that, then he's probably thinking like, wow, the temple was destroyed and there's still this new thing to come in history. So the disciples ask him the question, what are going to be the signs that the temple is destroyed and the sign of your coming, your return? In Mark, they don't ask that. He just writes down that they said, what are going to be the signs that all this happens? I mean, because they wouldn't have even had a concept that the temple could be destroyed and life continues on with more to happen in history. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So that's another reason. Here's the third one. Uh, Matthew is more explicit and expansive. That's in quotes because that's like quotes from a commentary. So that's his interpretation of, of what it means. Mark is more explicit and expansive regarding controversies that the early church faced. Um, so things like divorce or church discipline. Um, when Matthew and Mark both talk about those things, Matthew has more to say about them, which leads some scholars to think, well, if Matthew is written later, that's more time for the church to develop, to develop those leadership issues. So he's going to spend more time addressing them, whereas Mark is just telling you the story of what happened. Matthew's like, and let's apply this a little bit to our leadership situation. Does that make sense? Um, that's a, that's a like, I think, minutia a little bit, but it's interesting if you're parsing those out. Uh, next one, Mark wrote to a Roman Christian audience, a Roman Christian audience uh, who we think was facing severe persecution, uh, which could be said about you know, a good number of the New Testament uh, audiences, but facing severe persecution. Here's your next little bullet point there. The great fire of Rome occurred in 64 AD, um, and Nero, Emperor Nero, blamed the Christians. So in 64, that event happened. There's a huge fire that wiped out a lot of Rome. Um, Nobody knows exactly what happened. Some people think Nero started it, um, either as a way to get rid of some enemies or as a way to create something he could blame on the Christians. Or maybe it just happened and they weren't sure who to blame. Maybe Nero knew who to blame or didn't, but just decided, well, this is convenient. I'm going to blame it on the Christians so that people don't get mad at me or so that we can stamp out this faction that I don't like. They don't worship me anyway, so I'm looking for an excuse to get rid of them. There's a, a little bit of like intrigue around that historically. But what we do know is starting in 64, there was that huge fire and massive persecution outbreak in the Euro-70s and Christians' fault. Um, so that, that was what really started turning like public opinion pretty hard against the Christians in Rome. Uh, some major themes and important features in Mark. The first one is the messianic secret. Uh, the messianic secret. I don't know if you're familiar with that term or not. All the Gospels have this a little bit, but Mark does it more like explicitly, more frequently, where Jesus will do something miraculous and then tell, tell people, be sure you don't say anything. He'll heal somebody and like, don't tell anyone. He'll drive out a demon and like, don't tell anybody what happened. He's really like trying to keep the information quiet. So scholars term that the messianic secret. Um, I think the biggest idea is Jesus knows that if people really start hearing all the things he's doing and the claims he's making, then he's going to get killed, which is what ends up happening. And he probably knows the more that gets out and the faster it gets out, the less time I have to do this work. So let's keep it quiet as long as we can so that I can build what I'm trying to build. Um, So you see that a lot in Mark. Those are references there where Jesus specifically um, draws that out in the Gospel of Mark. Here's another cool theme, I think, in Mark, is Mark as a parable. Mark, of course, records parables that Jesus tells, but I think it's interesting to think of the gospel of Mark as a parable. Now, again, remember, if this, especially if this is sermons written down, like Peter's preaching the stories that happened, 
And in preaching, you know, you kind of build to a point or call to application or call to action or invite people in to consider their role in the story. So some scholars would say not only does Mark record the parables Jesus told, but it's structured and written to be like its own parable, like a story with, that's a little bit open-ended, inviting you to consider what you're going to do about it. So here's a couple of things, um, a couple of features of Mark that draw our attention to that. The first one, which I think is significant, is the abrupt ending. The abrupt ending. So let's look at that real quick in Mark 16. So my Bible, yours probably has something similar to this. My Bible has like a line under verse 8 of chapter 16. And it says, The earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, 9 through 20. Does your Bible have something like that? says that. So there are a couple things like this in Scripture. You probably looked at one last week in John um, with the simple woman where it's like, ah, some manuscripts don't have this. I think that story actually happened. I think it makes sense of something Jesus would do. I also think the earliest manuscripts don't have it. So maybe it wasn't originally there and they added it later. I don't know. But I think that really happened. I think it's consistent with the kinds of things Jesus would say. It maybe just wasn't originally what Mark wrote and he added it later. Or what John wrote and he added it later. I think a similar thing happened here where Mark and Peter, and Mark ends the story after verse 8 when um, the women see Jesus resurrected and it just ends, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now imagine if that's how it ends and you don't have the next few verses. The next few verses are kind of like Mark's version of the Great Commission. I'm like, you're going to go out and build this church and it's going to be incredible. One of the things he says is like, poisonous snakes will bite you and you won't be killed, which is part of why if you ever hear like, we kind of joke about it and roll our eyes and laugh about like those churches in the backwoods. They're like snake handling church. You ever seen those? <laughs> there really are churches who take this verse and like, this is true. So we're going to, that's part of their worship. Like pick up poisonous snakes and we're not going to die. Which is like, I think that's not what he meant. I think probably what he meant was in Acts, which we'll see later, Paul, you know, is shipwrecked at some point, gets bitten by a poisonous snake. And it says, and he suffered no ill effects. So I wonder if there's something like that where like, after the fact, Mark is like, let me make sure I add this on here too. These are some things we've seen as people go out and live this gospel out. Even stuff like this happens and it doesn't affect them. This is how powerful the gospel is. Jesus said, I'll be with you always. One of the ways that looks is you'll get bit by a poisonous snake and it won't hurt you. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So I think this is probably written by Mark or somebody who knows Mark. Somebody consistently trying to relay true things that happened. Verses 9 through 20. But I think the original ending was verse 8. But think about how that would sit with you. If you just read this whole gospel, Jesus telling parables, Jesus healing people, Jesus starting the kingdom, Jesus is killed, then Jesus resurrects from the dead, a few women see it, and then it just says they went away afraid, and they didn't say anything to anybody because they were afraid. For one, that's kind of like the bookend on the Messianic secret idea, isn't it? Jesus saying, don't tell, don't tell, don't tell. So they went away and they didn't tell yet because they didn't even know what sense to make of it. And then the book ends and you're like, well, what would I have done? I think I'd be afraid too. If somebody could raise from the dead, that's crazy. You know, like, what are they, is anybody going to believe them? Probably not. I'd be afraid too. Is anybody going to believe you when you say it? No, we're facing pretty severe persecution, aren't we? It's hard to talk about. They felt the same way and they saw it firsthand. But hey, what are we called to do? So I think this is kind of one of those, that's the parable. So now, how are we going to handle it? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's one 
uh, indication of Mark kind of written that way, calling us to response, which I think is pretty cool. Um, another one is the disciples don't always get it. The disciples don't always get it. And this is a feature, you know, in all the Gospels. It's not totally unique to Mark, but Mark does this a lot. So um, down here below is an assignment I actually did in college, so I just, because we had to do it in college. So I'm like, well, I'm not going to reinvent it for you. I'll just paste it here. But these are all the instances that I could find where Jesus' disciples just don't get what's happening. Um, so we're not going to look at all these right now. You can look at them sometime if you're curious about that. But there's a lot. I mean, just like look at that list. There's a ton of times that something happens and the disciples don't get it. Or the disciples ask a question that's, that's like not the right question. Or the disciples, you know, Peter, like, I'm going to build a tent because you're all here. And Jesus is like, they're disappearing and we actually got to go back down. Like we're not staying. You know, it's just that stuff where like, guys, do you not understand what's happening? happens a lot in Mark. So again, I think that's some of the, if, think about a couple layers to this. If Mark is writing down the preaching of Peter, who's one of the guys who didn't get it, there's something interesting about like a preacher, a Bible teacher, having a lot of kind of self-disclosure that's not always super positive. You guys did this well in your testimonies today. I was struggling with this and still am, you know, that kind of thing. So I think Peter probably saying like, man, I was there and I didn't get it. I saw him do this, I heard him say it, and look at the stupid thing I did. And then to to have people listening who can probably be like, yeah, I felt that way. Like, I hear you say this and I'm not sure I understand either. And Peter's like, it's okay, we didn't. Let's talk about it. Let's live it out together. Let's figure out how we're gonna do this. So I think there's something so beautiful about the disciples not getting it, and then inviting us to imperfectly follow, but faithfully, you know? I think it's really cool. Uh, here's another feature kind of down at the bottom of that list. Mark moves fast. Mark moves fast and is full of action. And so when you read Mark, the stories are like really tightly placed together. There's not, not as much like transition flow of like, then they went to this town and did this thing. It's more like Jesus said this and Jesus said this and Jesus healed them. It's like it moves really quick when you read it. Um, faster than the other Gospels. Um, we may have talked about this before. I think you can learn a lot about each of the four Gospels from how they begin. Have, have I told you about this yet? So Mark is that way. It just starts. Here's the beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here's the first prophecy he fulfilled. And then John came baptizing. It's like that, and I'm four verses in. You know, he's just like flowing. Whereas Matthew starts with the genealogy and the histori- historical connections and all that stuff. Um, so Mark moves quick. Here's a, like a, some data to show this. Um, your next little section. The Greek word immediately. The Greek word immediately. When you read your English Bible, it's not always translated immediately. So if you just search for that word, you, you won't necessarily see it all the time. We use it in English a bunch of different ways. Um, but the Greek word is eutheos. That's how you pronounce that, eutheos. So it's used 87 times in the New Testament. That's your next little blank. 87 times in the New Testament. 42 of those are in Mark. So almost half of all the uses are in Mark. And that's compared to a total of 31 in the other three Gospels. So Matthew, Luke, and John combine to use that immediately, then the next thing, and then 31 times. Mark alone, 42. So that's pretty distinct usage, you know, if he's talking about it that much. So he's like quickly connecting stories back to back to back, and then this, and then this, and then this, and then this, and it feels that way when you read it. So again, that to me is like a, it's, it's an important feature, but also one of those, like, you can almost hear, we, we kind of like invent these characters a little bit, because we get to know Peter some, but doesn't he seem a little like impetuous, you know, a little like, 
I could do this, and we could do that, and I could build a tent, and I have something to say. Jesus, I won't let them kill you. So this feels a little bit like that. And then he did this, then he did this, then he did this, then he did this. Like it feels like Peter's behind it, which I think is pretty neat to see. Um, so here's a couple different outline options uh, for you from Mark that may just help you think about segments here. Um, I've heard Mark described before as um, a passion narrative. You know what that is? It's like a passion play or a passion narrative, like the passion of the Christ, that movie. The passion is like the story of his death, basically that point. So I've heard Mark described as a passion narrative with an extended introduction. So it's like a, a pretty significant portion of the book talks about that. And a lot of the book points toward it. There's a lot of foreshadowing, a lot of aiming. All the gospels are that way. Um, Mark does it quite a bit. Um, so you can see then in this first outline, you see those kind of bold things um, that are just the way of suffering, the way of suffering. There's a lot of Jesus inviting the disciples into like, this is going to be hard. I'm going to suffer. You are too. I'm going to be betrayed. That's okay. I'm going to die. That's not the end of the story. There's a lot of that in Mark, just foreshadowing crucifixion stuff. So here's the first one um, for chapter 1 through 8. Uh, the kingdom of God comes near. The kingdom of God comes near. So there's a lot of healing stories there. There's a lot of Jesus like showing up and doing stuff quick. And it's almost like this, uh, almost abrasive, like the kingdom of God is coming and changing everything for those first eight chapters. Miracle stories, healing stories, big stuff happens. Um, and then he's got that little thing at the end, uh, the way of suffering. Um, if you look at chapter 8 and verse 31, starting at verse 31, it's the first time he predicts his death. So he's like, hey, isn't this awesome? Miracles and power and healings. But by the way, it's not always going to be like that because I'm going to die. And that's just going to be how it goes. Um, chapter 9 through 10, I just call the kingdom of God becomes clear. The kingdom of God becomes clear. So in that section is the transfiguration um, going into a healing. So it's, it, I think, again, a clarifying of like, I've done all these amazing things, but I'm going to be betrayed and suffer. Let me give you an example. I'm going to be transfigured, and then we're going back into town, and everything's still falling apart. So you can see me in all my glory, but it's still really difficult. Those things coexist. That's the kingdom. Um, you see the disciples asking questions, um, like later there in chapter 9, who's the greatest? And Jesus is like, well, let's talk about that. Um, and then later on in that chapter, don't cause little kids to sin. Like, make sure you're taking care of little ones and taking care of those who are more vulnerable. So um, the divorce section um, there. So there's a lot of those, um, like, what do we do about this? And what do you think about this? Well, let me clarify what that's going to look like in the kingdom. Um, the rich young ruler, right? Like, I've been obedient. Jesus is like, great, you still have an idol in your life. Can you give that up? That's the kingdom. Mm -hmm. It's not just about following the rules. It's about the whole of you. Um, so that uh, is chapter 10. Chapter 10 is like clarifying what he means by all of that. Then there's more predictions. Chapter 9, more predictions. Chapter 10, um, kind of spliced in there. Like, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be betrayed. I came here to serve. Just because I'm the king doesn't mean I'm above any of that. So neither are you. Um, chapters 11 through 13, I call the kingdom of God in conflict. So starting in chapter 11 is the triumphal entry. So again, it's like all these front-loaded with miracle stories. And then in the middle, it's like power and suffering, um, extreme kingship and humility. This is the clarification of what it's going to be like. Now let's go live it out for the last you know, six chapters of Mark, the passion narrative portion. Um, he goes in for the triumphal entry. So power, king, pageantry, 
and everybody hates him, right? The conflict really kind of takes a front seat. So it moves from messianic secret to like public, and this is what it's like when it goes public. People don't like it. Um, that's starting in chapter 11. Uh, chapter 14, and so this is all stuff from chapter 11 on, stuff we see is really similar in Matthew, like the fig tree withers, um, the thing about the temple being destroyed, the widow giving her offering, um, all that kind of stuff. Um, chapter 14 is when his feet are anointed, um, so that like the way of suffering things, like this woman comes to anoint him for his burial, um, so there's that overtone there. Um, the Lord's Supper, he's like, this is my body and my blood, I'm going to suffer. All those predictions kind of interlace there at the beginning of chapter 4, the Garden of Gethsemane and the arrest. Um, so the latter half of chapter 14 through 15, I would call the kingdom of God in power, which I think Mark has been setting us up for. Like power stories, miracle stories, power and suffering are going to coexist. That doesn't mean I'm off the throne. This is just what the kingdom of God is. I'm clarifying the kingdom for you. So then when it gets to this passion narrative, and he's being arrested, and he's being beaten, and he's dying, I think Mark has prepared you, and again, all the Gospels, but Mark really has prepared the reader, if you're kind of going through it, for like none of that is outside Jesus' control. He said it was going to happen the whole time. From the, from the get-go, he's been saying, but I'm going to be arrested. Yes, I'm powerful. I'm going to be killed. Yes, I can do miracles. I'm still going to die. All this stuff has been preparing for it. So when he's hanging on the cross, it's not as much of a like, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? It's more of a like, oh, he said this was going to happen. This is what the power of the kingdom is. Because he spent time clarifying the power of the kingdom is in the little children. The power of the kingdom is in the servant. The power of the kingdom is in this woman who gave everything she had so that I could be blessed. That's the power of the kingdom. So when he's up on the cross, the kingdom hasn't lost its power. The kingdom is exercising its power. Does that make sense? Um, and then later we talked about chapter 16 um, a little bit, but I would just call that the vindication of the way of suffering. So all through this, there's been all these little predictions. It's going to be hard. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to die. And then chapter 16 is like, remember when I said I was going to die? I'm back. <laughs> you know, like it worked. Suffering is the way of power in the kingdom. And I can be resurrected and that doesn't stop us. Um, so that's what Mark builds toward. Does that make sense? Um, a second outline thing, this kind of plays into that passion narrative of the long introduction. Um, you could just say those first eight chapters is like, who is the Messiah? What's happening? And then from the end of chapter eight through uh, up until 11, there's a lot of that clarification. That's where I put that. It becomes clear. Um, so it's like he shows who he is. And then there's a lot of nailing down. What does that mean? And then chapters 11 through 16 is like, let's just put this into practice. So that's like the simplified version of the longer outline above. Does that make sense? Questions? Uh, backside here. So when you're interpreting Mark, reading through Mark, uh, remember the suffering theme and context. Um, that's really laced throughout Mark in, in a more explicit way even than the other Gospels, I think. And remember, if Mark is written right closest to the time of that great persecution that Nero puts in place, how much more important even then for the Gospel to say, Jesus suffered too. Jesus suffered too. The Romans hated him too. So hey, are you going to be afraid and bewildered and not say anything to anyone? Or are you going to remember even Jesus suffered, was arrested, was persecuted by the Romans, and he won at the end of the day? So maybe they'll put you on a cross. Like they might literally put you on a cross like they did him. That's okay. That doesn't happen outside the power of God. That's part of the kingdom. So let's do this together. Um, so that's huge throughout Mark.
and for the original audience. Um, next, we've talked about this, but remember that Mark likely originated as a collection of sermons. I just think it's so cool to, to read it that way and to hear preaching and to hear like a story with an open-ended application throughout it. And I think it, that can be really helpful and powerful for us in our teaching when you're teaching from Mark to let it be that way. Let it be a story that builds to an open-ended. So that, just, that story just ended. What are you going to do? You know, I think it's built that way, so it's helpful to leverage it that way. Um, next, let the tension breathe and invite people to wrestle. We, again, we've talked about that. There's a lot of that. The ending of chapter 16, the suffering predictions, the, the arrest predictions Jesus has all throughout. Let that really be an emphasis of Mark because I think it, there's a lot of it there. So let Jesus have that. Let him build that tension. Let Mark and Peter build that tension for us. That's so much of what the kingdom is. Like, wait, I saw this power, and now you're saying you're going to die. There's tension there. What do we do with that? But that's where application is, I think, is in those tensions. Uh, next, Mark's penchant for action. You know what that means? It just means, like, he tends to talk about it a lot. It's like he has a bias toward action. Mark's penchant for action produces tightly woven stories. So leverage literary context in your teaching. So again, the stories happen back to back. There's not a, a whole lot of like just transitional movement. Um, it's an event, an event, an event, an event, pretty close together. Um, so pay attention to how those stories are put together. Because again, if I'm a preacher, teacher, if I'm Mark putting together quick hitting stories, there may be a reason that I put these two back to back. So see what Jesus just said, and then the next question they ask, or see what Jesus just said, and then the miracle he performs. Those things are linked real close together, um, and that could be helpful sometimes to see. And then third, let Jesus be a man of action. This story does move quick. Jesus does a lot of stuff. Immediately he did this. Immediately he did this. So I think it's helpful for us through Mark's lens to paint Jesus that way. Like Jesus has something to do, and he's getting after it. You know, he's not just sitting around thinking. He did that in John, maybe. You know, it has a lot to say. and He's going to sit down and have long conversations. Jesus is that also. But in Mark, he's getting after it. So that could be a really helpful side of him to see that I think Mark emphasizes for us. That Peter, I mean, again, imagine Peter. I would think Peter probably liked that part about Jesus, don't you? I bet he liked the part of Jesus that was driving and moving and taking action and getting stuff done. And he presents him that way. So it's cool to think of how Peter might have seen his friend and how he wants us to see his friend as somebody who's going to be active that way. Uh, a couple commentaries that are helpful um, that Mark for Everyone, all the For Everyone ones are helpful. Ronald Kernigan um, wrote a commentary on Mark. It's a blue one up there somewhere. Really, really good and pretty short, really readable, really helpful, but also really scholarly. So um, some good resources for you on Questions, thoughts about Mark? That was quick, like Mark is, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that. yeah, that's right. Then immediately we're gonna go to Acts. Yeah. <laughs> right.